I'm Tanya Kerson, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. Late last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its most alarming report to date. It concluded that we have as few as 11 years to make massive cuts in greenhouse gas emissions if we want to prevent all-out climate catastrophe. Even stronger storms, more erratic weather, dangerous heat waves, and rising seas that would devastate infrastructure and communities around the world. Climate change is also having a major impact on our food and farming systems. This is where Anna LePay started her research 10 years ago when she set out to write the now classic, Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork, and What You Can Do About It. What she discovered and laid out in the book is that yes, the climate is impacting our food. But maybe more importantly, the inverse is also true. The way we produce and consume food has a huge impact on our climate. And also, food can be a big part of the solution. Nearly a decade after the publication of Diet for a Hot Planet, I'm excited to welcome Anna LePay as our guest. Anna just happens to be the founder and co-director of Real Food Media and the former host of this very podcast. She's also a national best-selling author, a renowned advocate for sustainability and justice along the food chain, and an advisor to funders investing in food system transformation. Her research on food and farming has taken her to more than 25 countries and 100 U.S. cities, and her TEDx talks have been viewed more than one million times. Anna, welcome back to Real Food Reads. Hey, Tanya. Thanks for having me. I love being on this side of the conversation. Hi. Yeah, it's fantastic. So as you've talked about, when Diet for a Hot Planet came out almost a decade ago, there wasn't a strong understanding about the food and climate connection the way there is now. What's changed in the last 10 years? As you said in your introduction, and as I write about in the book, it's not just that the food system is going to be impacted by the crisis, and that it's not just that farmers are really on the front lines of that impact, but that really the food system, particularly agribusiness, is a huge driver of greenhouse gas emissions. And you really didn't hear that part of the narrative. Uh, you didn't really hear you know, some of the biggest agribusiness companies talked about in the same breath as some of our biggest fossil fuel companies. You certainly didn't see environmental groups that campaign around climate doing any campaigning that connected to food systems. And I really feel like that's really changed in 10 years. Again, is it where I think we should be? No. But you know, when I started writing Diet for Hot Planet, I looked around and none of the big green environmental groups, as I said, had a campaign that connected to food. And now when you look at the landscape of groups working on addressing the climate crisis, when you look at political leaders talking about solutions like the Green New Deal, you know, I really do feel like more and more people understand if you're going to talk about solutions to the climate crisis, you've got to talk about food, how it's contributing to the crisis, and also how farming is a key part of the solution. So my next question was going to be, you know, what took us so long to view yeah. food as a key component <laughs> of climate change? But, you know, I'm realizing now we're, of course, talking about the last 10 years since Diet for Hawk Plant came out. But we also know that, you know, fossil fuel companies and scientists and many others have known about the climate emergency for 30, 40 or more years. But right. really, what took us so long to understand <laughs> that industrial agriculture yeah. was ruining the planet? Well, I have a couple theories about this. I, I think this section in my book, I titled Blinded by the Bite, <laughs> when I was talking about, you know, why didn't we see this? 
And, you know, I think it's a complex number of reasons. I think one of them, frankly, is that the industries that are in the food sector that are driving this crisis, and, you know, maybe we'll get into this a bit more about where these emissions are coming from, but uh, industries like the fertilizer industry or the pesticide industry or, you know, agribusiness companies like Cargill, you know, they had no self-interest in making sure that narrative changed. They're perfectly happy to be out of the out of the limelight. And then in terms of the advocacy community, I think there was a lot of reasons why people didn't really focus on this. I think one is that historically advocates have um, shied away from talking about food from the advocacy perspective because because food is so personal. Mm. It's so, you know, as we talk about all the time together at Real Food Media, you know, as, as this podcast talks about, right, it's about our culture, it's about our spirituality, it's super, super personal. And that there historically, I think, have been a fear that if you talk about food, you start getting into this sort of finger wagging, you know, what should you eat kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, I talk about in the book and what I think we are all about at Real Food Media is that that doesn't have to be the case. If you want to talk about food and food change, you can talk about systems that need to change. You can talk about companies and, and corporate power that needs to shift. So I think that was part of the reason why advocates weren't as focused on it. And then, you know, I think there's also kind of a a scientific or wonky policy reason, which is that historically, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, how they talked about and how they structured the narratives about the sectors that are contributing to the climate crisis, food was nearly basically almost invisible in those sectors. In other words, they would sort of divvy up the pie of emissions based on electricity or transport or buildings. They had one pie slice in agriculture, yes, but then they also had a pie slice called you know, land use change. And what you see when you start looking at the drivers that are in the food system that are causing the greenhouse gas emissions is there's sort of food-related emissions hidden in every single pie slice <laughs> in that chart, but that as the IPCC has really changed its reporting and and its understanding of where these emissions are coming from. You're starting to see agriculture and food systems lifted out in a more clear way. And it's not like when you look at your dinner plate, you see, you know, the, the plumes of greenhouse gas emissions coming off of them. You know, it, it is easy and understandable why it would be so invisible. Sure. And you're making me think, you know, we also have so many vivid mythologies about where our food comes from. So we might actually Mm -hmm. picture some very bucolic green homestead um, when that's not the reality of the dominant, you know, very polluting, toxic food system that we live with. Right. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that I'm sort of thinking about as I talk with you, Tanya, because I feel like, you know, you bring this real international perspective to all of this work. And I think, you know, for a U.S. audience, one of the reasons why food wasn't so squarely in the center of the conversation is because, but if you're just looking at like what our EPA tells us are U.S.-based greenhouse gas emissions, the food system is actually in the U.S., a relatively small piece of that story. But if you look globally, you're talking about a really different story where the food sector was responsible for about one-third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And so I wonder if also part of the reason why we here in this country didn't talk about it so much is because it's really when you start talking about the global food system, which of course we are a part of here in the U.S., um, but when you talk about that global food system is when you can really pull up to that 30,000-foot view and understand that it's one in three greenhouse gas emissions are coming from the food sector. 
effects. Like if we're consuming, for example, in the U.S., large amounts of beef, which we are, and mm -hmm. you know, if, mm -hmm. <laughs> if a certain portion of beef comes from, say, Brazil, who gets the blame, right, for those emissions? Is it Brazil for right. all of the land use changes and the methane produced by that livestock? Or is it the U.S., you know, as the end consumer? Exactly. And like another great example of that is, is palm oil. So right. palm oil, I remember reporting this out when I was writing the book and being so shocked, not shocked, <laughs> that mm. um, palm oil had become the most widely traded vegetable oil in the world by 10 years ago. It still is today, largely because it was really relatively cheap to produce. And processed food companies all around the world were starting to look for alternatives to trans fat and were starting to increase the amount of processed foods they were producing for new markets. And palm oil was a helpful ingredient. It has relatively long shelf life. Uh, it does things like keeps your peanut butter smooth so you don't have to stir it when you open your jar. But unfortunately, it has this huge climate impact where uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, the two countries where the lion's share of the world's palm oil is now produced are incredibly impactful to the climate because those palm oil plantations are being established on formerly carbon-rich peatland that's being drained and it's being used for these incredibly environmentally destructive palm oil plantations. So again, who's eating that bag of cookies or that granola bar or that jar of peanut butter it's not necessarily consumers in Indonesia it's all right. of us around the world that are connected to that yeah and I think that the palm oil example is so interesting because of course so many of our industrial commodities it is a food but it's also not a food and what it goes into really depends on sort of these market conditions that are mm -hmm. always fluctuating so it can either make your peanut butter creamy or it might make your you know, deodorant stick to your skin. Right. Um, <laughs> and then, you know. Right. Or if you're yeah. in Europe, it might fuel your car. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the global yeah. food system and, you know, global commodities production and, you know, eating beef from, you know, New Zealand or, or Brazil. There is this popular idea that eating local can thus be the solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. So what are mm -hmm. your thoughts about this sort of like locavorism? Well, you know, out the gate, I'm a fan. <laughs> I think it's really important to support our local food economies. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to understand why and to be building those arguments for why based on evidence and sound science. But in general, the biggest sources of your food-related greenhouse gas emissions come from how your food was produced. In other right. words, did the producer use copious amounts of synthetic fertilizer, which are really energy intensive to produce? And also that use of synthetic fertilizer really impacts carbon soil health. And are you eating food that was produced using petroleum-based pesticides? But actually the, the percentage of emissions related to kind of transport, you know, the, the tailpipe of the truck or the other vehicle that got you that food, it's actually a relatively small part of your greenhouse gas emissions of your typical food item. I started the answer by saying I'm a huge fan of supporting your local <laughs> food economy. And, 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 I, and I stand by that because when we're talking about why we want to support the foods that we support, we're looking at the big picture. We're not just you know narrowly looking at something like greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we understand the complexity of, for instance, you know, supporting your local food economy 
That also means helping make sure that farmland stays as farmland. It isn't lost to urban sprawl. And guess what? That has a huge climate impact. <laughs> you know, right. you won't see that in the life cycle analysis of that food item, but that's part of that story. You know, the other thing that's a huge value to me and, you know, to all of us at Real Food Media is supporting relationships with farmers and food producers. And those relationships are often forged locally, although they don't have to be. And then, you know, the final thing I'd say is that, you know, while a small part of the greenhouse gas emissions story, of course, um, supporting really good sustainable farms in your local community, it means, again, not just keeping that land as farmland, but it also means protecting often biodiverse ecosystems and protecting clean water and clean air if you're talking about supporting farms that are using good ecological practices. And so I think it's important that we don't make our food decisions or food policy decisions based on only one metric, uh, that we really look holistically. So, okay, playing devil's advocate for a moment here, is it really a good use of our time, you know, considering we have like 11 years, (laughs) according to the IPCC, to focus on changing the food system, shouldn't we be focusing on, you know, switching from fossil fuels mm-hmm. over to alternative green fuel sources? Or can policymakers and us as climate activists really focus on these multiple priorities? I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, I think we're at such a point of crisis. Right. It's really clear we actually don't have a choice but to work on multiple fronts. Um, What we know is that the emissions related to the food system by 2050, for instance, uh, that we would blow our carbon budget. That, in other words, even if we got it 100% right in the energy sector, if we did nothing to address this real climate crisis in the food sector, we would fail. We would fail at protecting climate stability. And that's because what the trends are showing is that you know, it's not just population growth, it's the changing in demand that there's a prediction that there will be more demand for meat and for dairy, which has a really huge climate impact. There will be more demand for processed foods and that that will, again, you know, have this huge impact on land use change and on pressures on rainforest and peatland. So in other words, you know, yes, the food system right now is a third of greenhouse gas emissions coming from food, but it's only predicted to increase unless we really make significant changes. Wow. Okay. And I mean, I guess that is in part because of how the land use that goes into producing these industrial commodities and the, you know, fossil fuel based, you mentioned fertilizers before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're, if you're a podcast listener here, it's a real good media. You're probably familiar with the fact that you know, this industrial livestock sector, yes, is a huge user of land. And the reason why is because industrial livestock rely on feed crops like corn and soy. And when it comes to cattle, there's also a huge amount of land used to graze cattle before they get fattened on corn and soy. I saw the Union of Concerned Scientists did this analysis of land use and found that beef production uses three-fifths of all agricultural land in the world, but provides to the human population only 5% of our protein. Mm. So it's a hugely inefficient, (laughs) for the most part, really inefficient use of land. You know, again, because they're seeing such increase in demand for meat and dairy, that's where the concern comes from. And it's meat and demand that's being constructed by an industry that's selling its product and trying to expand to new markets. 
you know, we've been talking about yeah. consumption and uh, industrial agriculture, industrial livestock. But yeah. obviously, to achieve the kind of dramatic reduction in emissions that's being called for over the next decade, we need to actually change the way we produce food. So, mm-hmm. you know, my, mm-hmm. my question for you is, you know, how do we do that? And also, how do we do it without undermining the global food supply? Oh, well, here's the good news part of the story, right? You know, what we know is that there are really effective ways to grow food abundantly that doesn't rely on these practices that are bad for the climate. So that doesn't rely on synthetic fertilizer, that doesn't rely on petrochemicals, that actually builds up soil carbon content. One of the researchers who I quote in Diet for Hot Planet, Professor Rapan Lal, kind of one of the leading experts on soil carbon, estimates that we could, at a conservative estimate, is that we could sequester 17% of all of our current uh, carbon emissions in agricultural soils by using these ecological practices. So there's a huge solution at our fingertips by embracing ecological farming. It has this great benefit of producing healthier soils, which is uh, a good way to bring carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in the soils. It's also a good way to grow really <laughs> nutritious food. So, you know, to me, what's really exciting about talking about food and climate is that we have the solutions at our fingertips. It's not like we're pointing our finger at this huge crisis and saying, but, you know, we have no idea (laughs) how we're going to feed ourselves if we don't rely on this energy intensive system. There's a lot of great solutions that just in the past 10 years um, have really been scaling up and not scaling up in the sense of going from thousand acre farm to a hundred thousand acre farm, but scaling up in the sense that they're they're replicating across farmer to farmer efforts in regions all around the world that collectively are really starting to grow food with these ecological practices at scale. I do want to mention to you, Anna, that you have not used the word agroecology <laughs> in, uh-huh. in your answer. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you want to say a little bit yeah. about agroecology, just because I think, of course, ecological agriculture is wonderful, but speaks to a different movement and, yeah. and trend and practice. Yeah. So agroecology and, you know, Tanya, feel free to, to jump in also with your take on how one might define it. But the, the term agroecology, particularly outside of the U.S., has real resonance for a way of talking about a food system that touches on both science and practice of the way of farming, the, the, the movement, the social movement supporting a certain way of farming, and, and the actual, you know, what, what's happening on the ground. You know, in the U.S., I think we might not be so familiar with the term agroecology, but there's a lot of similarities between agroecological practices and organic farming, um, or right. what you might have heard of as sustainable farming. But it's really a way of growing food that works with the natural systems of one's farm uh, that really tries as best as possible to gain fertility on the farm using resources on your farm uh, that, that uses natural phenomenon like biodiversity to address pest pressure instead of pesticides that really thinks holistically about how do you build the health of your farm uh, using natural systems. You know, it's funny that you mentioned I, I had not used the word agroecology because when I talk to people in the U.S. and I use that term, 
often it just has no resonance. Mm-hmm. They've never, maybe never heard it before. Or they hear agroecology and they think it's like aggressive, <laughs> aggressive farming. <laughs> aggressive uh, ecology. I, I, but I actually think there's more awareness about the principles of agroecology in the U.S. than yeah, you know, about analysis of the times it show. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think on the one hand, it might be an example of how international trends certainly can and do influence the movement and the conversation in the U.S. You know, you mentioned how deforestation in Brazil to, you know, make our great American hamburger was something that started to really um, Mm -hmm. catalyze the conversation, right, about the environment and climate and our food. I think it's important to talk about agroecology and not because it should replace Mm -hmm. other concepts like ecological agriculture, organic or permaculture, because I think these concepts are all very, very rich and have their place in their history. I do think it's important to think about and understand the the, the political history of agroecology as something that goes beyond the actual farming system itself and Mm -hmm. farming practices and something that around the world where it's practiced and an integral part of social movements You know, it touches on culture, on policy, you know, it touches on trade agreements, on seed laws. So I think that uh, Mm -hmm. agroecology very explicitly and actively in a way that some concepts don't do quite so explicitly calls for policy change, calls for, for example, land reform. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting because one of the things that I've been doing in you as well, Tanya, has been working with this relatively new network of funders called the Agroecology Fund uh, to support these grassroots social movements around the world. And early on, this network was asking itself, should we call ourselves the Agroecology Fund? Nobody knows that term. (laughs) What does that mean? And I think the funders were responding to exactly what you're talking about, Tanya, understanding that it's really important to use the term because it has this political implication as well. Right. At the same time, um, you know, organic agriculture, we're talking about using food as a solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. We're talking about organics and agroecology and just a different kind of food production supporting our local food economies. But it it seems like the solutions that grab the headlines when it comes to, you know, addressing the climate crisis are really more like trendy consumer fads and technologies like geoengineering or, you know, lab-grown meat or, or the, mm-hmm. like, drought-resistant GMO crops. Is ecological agriculture just not sexy enough? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, is it is it not sexy enough or is it is it not profitable or patentable mm. enough, right? I think a lot of what we hear as you said, it's sort of, you know, we're going to, we're going to fix the world through some new technology investors can get behind. And what we've seen again and again, is a lot of promises. When I was writing 10 years ago about these issues, we saw promises from the biotech sector saying we're on the brink of genetically engineering and drought resistant corn. And I remember talking to colleagues in sub-Saharan Africa parts of Ethiopia that were the most drought-stricken places on the continent saying, look, we're not sitting around waiting for some genetically engineered seed. What we are innovating are agroecological practices that are showing that through using native seeds and through using these ecological practices, again, of building up that healthy soil, that that their their farmers were showing that they were able to withstand drought conditions. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that we should have seen enough by now to not trust, uh, you know, the good spin coming from people pitching products and to realize that 
really the kinds of farming solutions that, again, are scaling up, are showing incredible potential. Mm. Uh, it's really about knowledge-intensive farming, not about input-intensive farming. And you know, I think one of the best examples of this kind of rapid scaling up that that we need to do all around the world um, is happening in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh. Mm. And they call it their zero budget natural farming. And I actually have been hearing about it for years. And when I was in Italy earlier this year, I met one of the leaders of this. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm meeting you in person. I want to hear all about it. And it's massive scaling up of natural farming across the state of Andhra Pradesh. They're, they're hoping for 100% natural farming by 2024. And they're doing it, again, not through some silver bullet product, but through educating the farmers. And they're doing it through investing the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars in public financing to train farmers and equip farmers with the knowledge they need to, you know, again, to use ecological practices to deal with things like pests and, and fungus and, you know, the things that other farmers would use chemicals to deal with. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really unlikely that agribusiness and big food corporations are going to provide the solution to all of our problems, especially when also the cause of many of these problems to begin with. Exactly. Um, so we really right. have to, yes. to get organized, right? Yeah. And you look at like, there's this fad of, of the moment, this lab grown meat. I just went to a food tech conference in San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, was all of these investors in the room with all these corporate tech guys talking about their new food technology. And you know, there's very little third-party data on do these companies actually have less of an environmental footprint than, say, you know, raising livestock outside of the lab. Um, mm-hmm. And you're also seeing a lot of those investors or companies like Tyson that have a huge footprint in industrial-scale animal agriculture. And at the same time, they're investing in some of these lab-grown meat companies. Tyson's expanding all around the world into new markets. Mm. You know, it's not as if they've seen the light and are now going to realize that they need to scale back their global production, (laughs) you know? So I always think when you talk about one of the solutions, I think it's got to come from organizing, from movement building, and from corporate campaigns that are really going after some of the biggest drivers of the crisis, and that includes the industrial meat sector. It's impossible to have this conversation about food and climate change without addressing the meat question, and it's already come up Mm -hmm. several times in this conversation. Um, And so, you know, I can just hear people asking or advocating, you know, for, well, we just all need to go vegetarian or go go vegan Mm -hmm. and just really end the consumption of animal products once and for all. So would this solve the problem? Like, would this be enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I go back to kind of the beginning of our conversation, which is like, you've got to put this into a political and systemic context where one can imagine a scenario, say we snapped our fingers overnight and everybody was no longer eating animal-based proteins. Unless you're actually talking about what's the system you're for, not just what you're against, one can imagine replacing all of that animal-based protein with I don't know, Cargill soy burgers, you know, (laughs) grown from soy raised in former rainforest. You know, we've got to really be clear about what are the values behind our food choices and then look at what food reflects those values. And to be honest, what I like about starting from our values is that 
what our plates look like then can look very different. You know, what, what you might choose to eat might be very different from what I choose to eat, might be different from what, you know, our colleague in Southern India might eat, that it can reflect that cultural diversity and that biodiversity of where we live. You know, it certainly means for that U.S. consumer who's on average way over consuming meat and dairy to move more to what I talk about in Diet for Hot Planet as a plant centered diet, where really plants are the center of your plate. And then your protein source comes from whatever is culturally aligned with your cuisine. Mm. And for some people that might be animal-based protein and for others it might not be, but it's definitely not as if one has to shut the door on anybody who's consuming animal-based protein because that's the choice they're making. And I think what I'm more interested in is how do you take on industrial animal sector so that it's not expanding globally, so that it's not exploiting more animals and land. And so that for those people who culturally and spiritually in some cases and personally want to choose animal-based proteins as that condiment on their plate alongside the plant-based center, you know, they can make that choice for an animal-based protein and it would align with their values of animal welfare and worker welfare and environmental stewardship. Because right now, when you talk about people who are choosing to eat animal-based proteins in this country, you know, more than almost 100% of all the beef available to pretty much every consumer today in the U.S. isn't being raised in ways that reflect you know, what I think are really common values. I think what we think the real media are common values around supporting workers and animal welfare and the environment. Whatever you choose to be your source of protein on your plate, I think there's solidarity around agreement that this industrial animal agriculture sector has got to be contained and reformed if we're going to address the climate crisis. Right. I mean, it's interesting to me how these questions so often revolve around consumer choice as opposed to mm-hmm. you know, why do we eat more meat because we have this industrial production of meat <laughs> and that actually right. drives the demand and that's not just in meat right like since we've had it's the industrial production of of all these foods that are pretty bad for us that's driven the increase in their consumption around the world and this epidemic of diet related illness Right, right, right. It's like, yeah, why are we all drinking the gallons of soda a year that on average <laughs> people are drinking, right? That wasn't what we used to consume. Or, you know, even chicken. For Real Food Reads, we did that interview with Marin McKenna, who wrote mm-hmm. Big Chicken, which if people listening haven't listened to it, loved that podcast, loved Marin McKenna. And it was fascinating. It's one of the things she talked about in the case of chicken is how the introduction of antibiotics in chicken production sped up the growth of chickens in factory farms Mm. and therefore increased the supply of relatively cheap chickens, but like increased it astronomically. And all of a sudden you had an industry that was like, Oh, okay. Now we got to create demand Mm -hmm. (laughs) because people aren't eating chicken like this. Chicken used to be the thing you'd have on a Sunday, you know, maybe, right. Like it wasn't a daily consumed product. And so then they quote unquote innovated things like chicken nuggets and chicken fingers and ways to eat chicken where you didn't have to take apart a carcass. (laughs) And all of a sudden you have radically changed the U.S. diet to be one where people are eating a lot of chicken. But again, that didn't come from our personal taste preferences or again, some sort of cultural relationship with 
daily consumption of chicken exactly. came from a really smart marketing campaign by an industry that all of a sudden had a lot of product on its hands. Yeah, I mean, talking to you here from Minnesota, I can't help but think of of spam, you know, and Hormel having all of these, <laughs> you know, these meat byproducts, and like, how can we get people to eat this? Yeah, I mean, it sort of butts up against some of the reaction I've gotten for diet for Hot Planet and this mm. conversation about what would it look like, you know, to have a more climate friendly diet. Is the pushback one gets as well? Diets are fixed. People have these desires, and they're never going to change, and they're fixed. And it's like, yeah, well, then why? <laughs> Does Coke spend $6 billion to ensure that Coca-Cola stays in your diet every year in marketing dollars globally, right? Diets are constructed. Exactly. Wow, that's a great quote right there, (laughs) Anna. Um, (laughs) Circling back then and also, you know, by way of conclusion, I just I wanted to come back to just the title of your book, Diet for Hot Planet, which... I love and is, of course, a riff off of your mother's book, Diet for a Small Planet from the 70s. And as you've been mentioning, like there is something I won't say sort of deceptive about the title. Right. But because Mm -hmm. we do know that our diets and the things on our plate should look very different. That's the whole point if we're going to address the climate crisis. But you're not actually saying that there is one diet, quote unquote, that can save the world. You're actually asking us to think beyond our plates. Maybe we can end, you know, with just a few concrete ideas um, that you have for how we can take action today, like in our everyday Mm -hmm. lives to address climate change. Yeah. And well, that's exactly right. First of all, there's not one diet. It's really, again, following values. I have seven principles in the book that are reflective of climate friendly approach to eating. And then what you put on your plate can look very different depending on who you are and where you are. But also, as you said, we absolutely have to go beyond our plate and going beyond our plate will ultimately change what we have available to us to put on our plate. And, you know, I, I think the thing I would point to that's something that we at Real Food Media have been working on that I'm really excited about, I think all of us at Real Food Media are, is looking at how can we use institutional food purchasing as a way to shift the supply chain, shift what's on our plate for all of us. And we've seen this institutional purchasing policy reflected in the work we've been doing around the Good Food Purchasing Program, which is a values-based food purchasing program that gets city governments and school districts to be inspired to ask values-based questions about where their food is coming from. You know, does the food they're purchasing for their city schools reflect these values around animal welfare, health, the environment, which of course includes climate, workers, uh, local economies. And what we're seeing, we're analyzing some of the data where we've seen cities and school districts pass this program we're actually seeing that this institutional purchasing shift can have enormous impacts on the environment. The Friends of the Earth did this study of Oakland Unified School District Good Food Purchasing Program integration in the schools there here in California. And they found that over just two years with the program in place, the district upped its fruit and vegetable purchases by 10%. Mm. They decreased their meat and dairy purchases by 30% and was able to use some of that cost saving to purchase higher quality meat raised with more environmental standards. And as a result, a 14% reduction in their carbon footprint as a district and a 6% reduction in water use, all while actually saving some money in their budget. So to me, it's a great case study of what it looks like when people get organized in their community to pass a policy that can really shift the system in the ways that we know it needs to be shifted uh, in order to protect the climate and bonus 
also be better for your health. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. You can join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org.